the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. One of the more tempting errors that modern people face is to think that because we have the means of observing more things than those who have gone before us, we are therefore more perceptive and wise. While it is true that we have advanced our instruments for gathering information, it does not follow that we have become more skilled at deriving meaning. As Edwin Friedman notes, this focus on more and more data has actually caused us to regress as a society, leading us to believe falsely that by knowing more, we can solve any problem. Much, however, depends on our ability not to obsess with the acquisition and arrangement of information. Wisdom often means being able to see through a cloud of distracting and irrelevant details to perceive a truth beyond them. And so it was for the church at Ephesus. On the surface, Ephesus was one of the great cities of the ancient world, wildly prosperous, cosmopolitan, and sophisticated. At the same time, its prosperity went hand in hand with its being a hub for an idolatry sowed into every level of political and economic life. To live in Ephesus meant to breathe in a sense of power that came from being so near a dark and terrible goddess, a power that commanded respect, exerted gravity, and made everyone who partook of it rich. That sense of power trickled down to the common sphere in the form of magic. Whether it was their cynical capitalizing on the flood of pilgrims to the city, or an authentic attempt to control some of that ambient divine power, being so near to the shrine of the goddess drove whole industries of divination, ways of bringing the goddess and her power down to aid the prosperity of the temple people. When Paul proclaimed the gospel of the Lord Jesus to the Ephesians, something in that spell snapped, and they began immediately to burn all of those things concerning their divination, and the city was thrown into an uproar. Those whose livelihoods had depended on the ugly temple cult turned into a mindless, violent mob seeking to kill Paul and any who followed Christ as Lord. The gospel meant not just the disruption of business, but a shaking of the foundations of their whole way of life and their sense of control. St. Paul explains to the Ephesians in his letter to them why this happened. Quote, God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together in Christ and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That salvation, though, that God extended and lifted up in the, in the giving to us out of his goodwill, reordered heaven itself, as St. Paul explains to the Colossians. Quote, he has made you alive together with him, having forgiven you your trespasses, and has taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, 
He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Those who were previously in power in the heavenly places and used it to exalt themselves and to dominate others have been displaced by Christ and now his exalted people who have taken their position. In response, these powers are deeply angry. As St. Paul teaches, quote, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The Ephesian cult, with its economics and politics, is but the outward face of a spiritual war in the heavens between the fallen powers and between the servants of Christ who now occupy those heavenly places. St. Paul's exhortation to all Christians is to reflect on the nature of the true fight, to stand firm, to stay where you are, because there is no other place to be. Quote, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. The Ephesian situation reminds us that amid the deluge of goings-on in our world is, a go, is an ongoing war in the heavenly places. That war comes to us, though, in a barrage of temptations, mostly to renounce the inheritance that we have by virtue of sharing life in Christ. It is the desperate bid to get the saints who have been seated on high in the heavenly places to abdicate their seats. To be sure, our enemies can offer us nothing, but they will always try to offer us a fantastical something at a high cost, and usually something that is already freely ours and given to us by God. They will lie to us in every imaginable way to subject us again to themselves, to be back on top in their former seats. All they want, in the end, is power. But we must always remember that they can take nothing from us that we do not willingly assent to give. We must not then be lured into losing the high ground and the stability that comes with it. We are called to stand firm together as a people. As Christians, ours is not a call to go on the offensive or to engage in some fictive and fantastical battle against the devils or their powers. Instead, St. Paul's exhortation in the spiritual fight is to stand fast, quote, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. But something in us may balk at the idea that our participation in spiritual warfare, our participation in Christ's victory, is our patient and unceasing prayer. We are a people, after all, who love to figure things out and to solve problems. And prayer often strikes us as the thing we do after we've run out of things to do. This is why Jesus said to, this, to the noblemen of Capernaum, you people only believe what you can see. Like that nobleman, we believe enough after we've exalted, uh, exhausted all the real options to go and fetch Jesus and to bring him into the situation. 
But the real test of belief comes when, we, when Jesus refuses to go the way we've told him to go. To the extent that this is how we regard Jesus in our lives, we can expect that he will offer to us the same opportunity for growth that he did to the nobleman, requiring that we actually trust him. As Jesus said to the nobleman, it is done. Go on your way. And then he actually requires him to go the days-long walk after hearing that, wondering if Jesus actually did the thing that he said before he got home to see for himself. This is, in the end, the only way we grow in belief in something more than what we can already see. Our present struggle in the, in the spiritual fight is not fundamentally different than that of the Ephesians. Like them, we find ourselves situated in a glorious city built on the economics and politics of a prosperity gospel, a way of considering ourselves uniquely favored by the gods and walking in the kind of faux sophistication that attends that self-regard. Lavish, sometimes self-assured, our city does all it can to ignore the unseemly details that are just out of sight, the gritty realities of exploitation, of violence, of addiction, of superstition and magic that thrive just below the surface. And then, too, heading into an election week, we see reflected back to us in every ad how we attempt to safeguard this way of life in a kind of collective yearning for control. We forget that those we root for in this battle are often striving mainly to retain power for themselves, and we pretend that they want to share that power with us, even though they don't. If we're not careful, we become, as a democratic society, filled with magical thinking. And a ballot in our hands can be just as dangerous as the magical book in the hand of an ancient Ephesian. And in doing so, if we fall into that temptation, it will make us complicit with the powers of the air. It will be easy for us, most of us, this week, to get bloated with all the indigestible details, binge-watching the news, doom-scrolling social media, or, if you're like me, ingesting scores of articles and calling it research. But nobody in this room will be able to change the titanic movements of world events or add a single hour to their own lives by engaging in this aimless fretting. And in the meantime, we are more likely to lose our souls. Remember that nothing is as important as your life in Christ. Nothing is as important as charity for your neighbor. Do not get distracted by proxy victories in proxy battles. Remember where our real fight is and know that we will only achieve victory in that real fight by receiving again with prayer and humility and gratitude the simple life of a saint who prays. Our Lord's Advent is closer now than ever before, both liturgically and in the very real sense of time. We will see him, and the manner in which we meet him 
will be shaped by how we served and trusted and expected him now, while so much of what he is doing remains unseen. That means it is time for us to get very serious about prayer. And not the kind that seeks to conscript our Lord, but the kind that relinquishes that control to him, that unclenches the fist around control over our own lives, and says to him, and means it, I trust you. Before anything else, this surrender is what it means to fight the good fight of the faith. Because it returns us to the one in whose victory we share. This prayer alone, after all, enabled a bookish former Pharisee and his pathetically small house church to shake and then to mark the undoing of the hideous strength of ancient and mighty Ephesus. As we would be a Christian people who are counted worthy to stand before the Lord in the midst of our city in the time given to us, let us continue to be then, as St. Paul says, watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.